Great to be with everybody this morning. Y'all doing okay? Awesome. Good deal. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be this morning is 1 Corinthians, continuing our series, Messy Church. So last week I uh, led with a provocative question, and that question was, how do we define success in ministry? So if you were to consider what is a successful church, or maybe you might consider, why are you here? How would you answer that question? I mean, I think if we're honest, nobody wants to walk into a room where there's nobody, there's no people. Right? Can you, have you ever walked into a room and there's nobody there and it's vacant and you think, my goodness, something must be wrong with this place. Right? And no, nobody does that, right? You want to come into a room where there's a lot of people and you think, wow, okay, cool, man. Something must be worth their time, so it must be worth my time. And so, we, so, so here we are. How would you define success in ministry? What would you say is a successful church? Well, over the years, the metric for success in the church has been the three Bs. It's how many people can you fit into a room? How big is your building? How big is the budget? And that's been what has kind of driven what is a successful church. And last week we saw that Paul pushes up against that, right? He says, no, that, that's not what a successful church is. In fact, he paints a whole different picture of what a successful church really is. And so when your metric for success is about how many people you can fit into a room and uh, you know, how much money you have in your budget and how big your building is, it can push ministry leaders to create an unhealthy culture. It can lead us to creating a entertainment culture, right? Where the goal is, let's, let's entertain them, let's win them, let's get them in the doors. And if we can get them in the doors, then we'll preach the gospel, then maybe they'll believe. But the problem is, is that we never really get past an inch deep. You know, on the other hand, though, is there are churches who, uh, well, quite frankly, they, they don't have any sort of attractive nature to them, right? And so they kind of focus on themselves and the people in the room. And so they're not seeking the people outside of the doors. They're just seeking to build up the people on the inside, which is not a bad thing at, at all either. But the problem there is, is that we end up being several inches deep, but not very wide, and what Paul is saying is that's a problem, that, that the church shouldn't be, shouldn't have an entertainment culture where we're trying to entertain people and win them that way. But neither should the church be a celebrity culture either, right? That it's not about the leader. It's not about the person who's leading the church. And yet in many churches, we've seen that churches are built around a personality, a charismatic speaker, uh, somebody that we deem to be very important and special and a great speaker, whatever that may be. And so people flock to them and maybe it's the message that they preach. And so Paul would say, no, 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 that's not, <laughs> that's not a healthy church. It's certainly not a successful church, but rather a successful and healthy church is a church that preaches the word. And it's the word that does the work, not the preacher. It's the word. It's the word of God that's alive. It's living and active as the writer of Hebrews would tell us. And, and, and that as you read it, it is reading you and it's leading you to do something. We're going to talk about that more this morning. Uh, but it's the word that has the power, not the person. And so Paul says, I came to Corinth not uh, preaching uh, with lofty wisdom or, or of great rhetorical skills, but I came to you and I preached the gospel. Why? So that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And so you might think, well, then does that mean that we don't 
care about the results? Does that mean we don't care about the fact that we're reaching more people? Well, of course not. We want to reach as many people as the Lord would allow. Does that mean that we don't work hard? Does that mean that we don't, you know, prepare and do all those things? Of course not. It just means that we don't put the cart before the horse. As the great theologian Nick Saban once said, um, in a conference speaking of the Alabama football team, he said, you know, we've never really focused on results. Very rarely will you ever hear us talking about national championships. Very rarely will you hear us talking about winning games, but rather what we do is we focus on perfecting the process that leads to success. And then that dictates the results. As a church, I think what Paul would have us do is to focus on the process, and the process is the faithful teaching of the Word of God, And as we do that, and we do that the best that we can, so as the Lord has given us the gift of teaching and preaching and all those things, and then we leave the results up to him. Doesn't mean we don't care about the results. It just means that we're not going to put the cart before the horse. We're going to be faithful to to the thing that he has called us, the task that he's called us, and then we leave the results up to him. And so that's what Paul taught us last week. And that's a great foundation for what we're going to teach or what we're going to talk about this morning. And so if you would, go ahead and look with me in verse 6. And we're going to go through 16. So verses 6 through 16 this morning. This is the word of God. This is what Paul has to say to us this morning. He says, yet... So keep in mind what he said before, right? That word yet is going to point us back to what Paul has already said, that I came to you not preaching with lofty wisdom or of great rhetorical skills, but I came to you preaching Christ crucified that you might, that your faith might rest not in the wisdom of man, but the power of God yet. It's important. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, Paul says. But he says, it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but rather we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except for that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He goes on, he says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, Paul says, have the mind of Christ. So I want you to see this passage on kind of two ends of the spectrum. On the first end, it's a dig, right? He says, yet among the mature. Why is he saying that? Because he doesn't deem the people in Corinth mature. 
He says, I had to come to you with the basics of Christianity. I had to come, with you, come to you with, with just, just the basics because you, quite frankly, weren't ready to go deep. You weren't mature enough to handle the bigger things of God, the wisdom of God. And so it's a dig on one end, but on, on the other end, it's an invitation. I think Paul is inviting us, he's inviting the church in Corinth to experience the wisdom of God, to get in line with the Spirit of God and to allow the Spirit of God to transform them from the inside out. So it's both a dig, hey, you're not mature enough to handle what I'm about to say. (laughs) But at the same time, it's an invitation to come drink deeply of the well that he's about to offer us. So that's what Paul does, right? Now he makes three particular arguments that I want you to see this morning and are very important for your walk with Jesus. Number one, I want you to see that there are two kinds of wisdom. I don't know if you knew that or not, but there are at least two kinds of wisdom. Paul says that there's a wisdom of the world that is temporary. So that's one wisdom. There's wisdom of the world that's temporary, that's human-centered, you might say. But then there's another kind of wisdom, and that wisdom is a godly wisdom that is eternal. Now, by wisdom, we're talking about a worldview. We're talking about a lens, a way of seeing the world and kind of the lens that helps us to make sense of everything in the world, right? So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about wisdom. It's, this, it's more than knowledge, right? You can be the smartest person in the world and yet actually have no wisdom. You know that person? Yes? I heard a strong yes over here. <laughs> yep. So you can have all the knowledge in the world and yet actually have no wisdom. A wisdom is the way in which we see the world and make sense of it all. And there's a way to do that that's human-centered, and there's a way to do that that is God-centered. Now, there's three, I'm going to give three examples here of the difference between the two. So we'll go with the first one. The wisdom of the world would say that we're to love all people, that we're to accept them as they are and to affirm their behavior. So that would be the wisdom of the world. And it sounds great, right? There's a way in which we're to see all people and we're to love everybody. The Bible tells us that we're to love all people as we love ourselves, right? We're to love everyone. We're to accept them and and we're to affirm them. That seems biblical. That seems right. I mean, why, why wouldn't we do that? But that's a human way to look at it. I think a godly way to look at that would be to say that the wisdom of God is to love all people to engage them as they are, but true love requires that we don't leave them where they are, but that we help move them towards God's good design for them because that's for their ultimate good. That's for our ultimate good. You see the difference? There's a human kind of wisdom that says, love all people, accept everybody, affirm them in their behavior and everything that they do. And then there's the godly wisdom that says, no, 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 that's not true love. True love is to love them, to engage them where they are, but then help them to see God's good for them because we know that God has a good for them. And it's far better than any one thing that I can choose for myself. So that's one example. There's another example. The wisdom of the world would say that everything that you see right here, this is all that there is, so we better live it up. Our younger generations call that YOLO. You only live once. So live it up. Gain everything that you can because this is it. This is all that we have to live for. 
It's a way of seeing the world with the temporary lens to say, man, I've got to gain everything. I've got to hoard everything because, man, this is it. This is all that I've got. And so I better enjoy every last second of it. I think godly wisdom, which is far more eternal, would say, well, absolutely, life is short. And so, yeah, get what you can, but not so that you can hoard it for yourself, but that you can give it away to others as they have need. See, there's a difference in the way that we see the world. You can see the world that is, again, human-centered, and then you can see the world that is God-centered. And God is inviting us this morning to see the world that, in a way that's God-centered, that's got his wisdom at the root of it. Another example would be to say worldly wisdom might put it like this. If you don't like who you are, try to be someone else. You don't like who you are, be someone else. Create the image you want others to believe about you. Whereas a godly wisdom would say, no, 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 be you. But not the you that you've created, but the you that God created. You see the difference? There's a you that you want people to believe, and then there's the you that God created, that he says is fearfully and wonderfully made. So all my ladies, I want you to hear me. You can rest in the truth that God has created you unique, unique to you with your gifts, with your smile, with your eyes and your hair and all of the things that make you beautiful. And that you don't have to be somebody else, but rather you can rest in the one who has made you fearfully and wonderfully made men. Because this is true, a godly wisdom would tell you that that you're enough, right? That you don't have to prove that you're more than what you are. That the car that you drive and the woman that's on your arm and the money that's in your bank, quite frankly, doesn't really matter before a holy God who has created you, unique to you, who has given you gifts and wisdom and all of those things. That you can rest in the truth that you are enough and that you have what it takes. Isn't that true, men? That's the message that deep down inside, if we're honest, that's, that's the message that we want to hear. That we wish that our dad might have said. Well, you know what? Your heavenly father has said it. And so you can rest in that truth. So there's two kinds of wisdom. Now, the major difference between these two types of wisdom is how they are discerned. Okay, so Paul says that a godly wisdom, it is hidden and it cannot be discerned by the natural eye. Paul uses a historical example in verse 8. He says, if the natural eye could discern a godly wisdom, then quite frankly, they wouldn't have killed Jesus. They wouldn't have crucified him. And yet what we know on this side of history is that they did. Why? Because they were blinded to the truth that was standing literally right before them. They were blinded. The difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom is how it's discerned. And what Paul says is that the natural person cannot discern the spiritual truths of the Lord apart from the Spirit. The Pharisees killed him because they were looking for a different kind of Messiah. The Romans killed him because he was threatening their authority and their peace. The Greeks rejected him because a God that they would worship could never empathize with his subjects 
certainly wouldn't come to the earth and live in their place and die for them. I mean, how could I worship that kind of a God who would do that? I mean, what God would ever do that? So the Greeks rejected him. And what all of these groups have in common is that fundamentally they are blind to the truth that is right in front of them. So if Paul says that it's a secret kind of wisdom, that's what he says, it's secret, it's hidden, well then how in the world is this truth discerned? Well, that's his second argument. His second argument is that the truth of God is discerned through the Spirit of God. That apart from the Spirit, the truth of God cannot be discerned. That's the reason why you look on the news and you think, how in the world can people think that this is a good idea? Well, the reason why they think it's a good idea is because they are blinded to the truth. (laughs) That's the reason why we live in a world where we see the world from, quite frankly, two different realities. It's because we're living in two different realities. One's eyes are open and the other ones are closed to the truth of God. Paul says in verse 10, he says, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except for the spirit that is in that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the spirit of God. Now he makes another point here. He says, now we, speaking of Christians. So he's speaking primarily or strictly of Christians right here. He says, but we, Christians, have received not the spirit of the world, but rather we have received the spirit who is from God. For what purpose? He answers it. That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So here's Paul's point. Paul's point is that the spirit of God searches the heart of God and interprets the wisdom of God into the hearts of God's people. Did you follow that logic? I'm going to say that again because that's pretty good. Think about this. The Spirit of God searches the wisdom of God and then interprets the wisdom of God into the hearts of the people of God. Which means that the Spirit of God is the conduit from God's wisdom, from His heart to your heart. Just to think about that. A conduit we use to protect and to transport something valuable to another thing that is valuable. The Spirit is the conduit by which God's wisdom goes from His heart into your heart, Christian. Think about that. That's crazy. That is wild. That the very spirit of the God who created the universe and everything in it that created the human mind, the human mind that neurologists still can't get their mind around. And yet, you can be the most brilliant person on the face of the planet and yet not have a lick of God's wisdom. And yet you could be the dumbest person on the planet and yet have the wisdom of God. That is nuts. The Spirit of God is the conduit from God's heart to your heart this morning in this room in 2024. Are we 2024? Yes, 2024. That is incredible. And all you have to do to get that is to say yes to Him. 
That's nuts. The only way that we can come to God in faith, this is good, the only way that we can come to God in faith is if upon hearing the gospel preached, the Spirit of God awakens faith. That's what he does, right? So when I'm preaching the gospel, just like I did last week, I'm preaching the gospel, the explicit gospel. It's the Spirit of God working in your heart. He awakens faith for us to come forward and say, yes, I want that. I want that salvation. That's the Spirit of God prompting you to do so. In the same way, it's the Spirit of God that is, indwells the Christian, that convicts the heart of sin, that calls out the sin in our life, that leads us to repentance. Paul would later on say that, that it is God's kindness that would lead us to repentance. It's his gracious gift in our life via the Spirit that he would lead us to repentance. That's the Spirit that's doing that. It's not the bad enchiladas you ate the night before. It's the Spirit of God working in your heart, leading you to go, man, this is not right. I agree with you and I confess and I repent and I want restoration. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that leads in our heart, that directs us towards the truth, that helps us see what is right from wrong. It's more than moral choice. The Spirit of God transcends what we see to be moral. You can be a moral person and yet not have the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that teaches you what is right and wrong in a moment's notice. What do you do when you enter into a crossroads? God, Lord, I don't know what to do. It's the Spirit of God in you, living within you, that leads you into the right direction. But it's also the Spirit of God that enables you to follow the truth that he has placed in you. So hear me. You can't do the Christian life apart from the Spirit of God. And better question, why would you want to? I mean, think about that. If I have the Spirit of God, the heart of God, and the Spirit is the conduit into my heart, which means I have access into the depths of God. That's what Paul says, not what I say. That's what Paul says. If that is true, then why in the world would I leave the Lamborghini in the garage? Well, you wouldn't. And yet what Paul's going to say here in just a minute, and we're going to talk about this in a, a ton next week, is yet that so many Christians have the Spirit of God and yet they leave it in the garage and they act as though they do not have the Spirit of God. Paul's going to say that's crazy. He's going to use the word immature. For you and for me to have the Spirit of God living within us and yet to not actually live by the Spirit of God is not only crazy, but Paul would say it's immature. It's immature. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 25. He says, he's speaking to his disciples. He says, these things I have spoken to you that while, I am, while I'm with you. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he's going to teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So again, hear me. Dwelling in each Christian, each believer is God's very spirit who awakens faith, gives hope, gives life. It convicts of sin and righteousness. It leads into truth. And then it enables us to live by that truth. 
This week I had an awesome opportunity. We were having lunch with a friend of mine. He's a fellow pastor. Haven't heard his story. So we went to lunch and spent some time together. I heard his story of, of how he came to know Jesus and, and now how he has entered into the ministry and accepted the call to pastoral ministry. His story was fascinating. He said he grew up in a home that wasn't a Christian home. He didn't have that luxury. In fact, it wasn't a spiritual home at all. And so he always wrestled with identity, purpose, and meaning. Well, why am I even here, you know? And he goes into college and there was a group of people on his college campus that seemed like they could offer that to him. It was a group of Muslim students. And so he didn't know any better. So he joined this group of, of Muslim students. And for a while, it seemed like, man, I'm finding identity. I'm finding purpose and meaning in this group of people. But a year goes by and man, I just, I'm, I'm, it's missing something. That hole in his heart led him to a point of depression, which led him to a point of going home. And his mom, who had a friend who was a firm believer and a, and a Christian said, hey, why don't you guys just come to church? And so he said, mom, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever. If you think this is right, then sure, why not? We'll give, it a, we'll give it a shot. And so he stumbles in the door of a large church in his hometown. He said, Logan, it was wild. He said, there were 2,500 people in this worship center. And he said, the preacher gets up and pre begins to preach. And he said, it was as if the preacher knew everything about me. He knew all my skeletons. I mean, it was like he was speaking directly to me, 2,500 people, and he was talking directly to me. How could that be? Well, I'll tell you how it could be. It wasn't the preacher. It was the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. What Paul says is the Holy Spirit searches even everything, even the depths of God. He knows everything. He knew Broderick from the moment he was born. And he knew the day he was going to step into that church. And he knew everything about his story, the highs, the lows, everything in between. And as the preacher is speaking and preaching God's word, he speaks directly to Broderick's heart. That day, he gave his life to Jesus. But even more so, he changed a generation of people. And now this man is a pastor helping other people meet with God. Have you ever had that? Where you walk in the room and you think, golly, how does he know me? It's like he's speaking directly to me. And listen, I know a handful of you pretty well, but I don't know your deepest, darkest secrets. I don't know what you need to confess. I don't know what you're struggling with. Sure, I might know a few of, you, of, of your stories and some of the things that you're wrestling with, but man, I don't know all of you, the people in this room. You, I wish I could. We, could. we should go have lunch. I'd love to learn. And yet you can come into this room and it's as if I know your story and I'm speaking directly to you. But I'm not. I wasn't sitting in my, at my kitchen table writing the sermon going, oh, you know, oh, man, this is going to be great for them. <laughs> oh, I can't wait till they have to wrestle with this truth. It's the Spirit of God who knows you and is speaking directly to you. Awakening faith, convicting your heart of sin and righteousness Saying, hey, 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 whoa, 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 buddy. Or, hey, keep it up. It's the Holy Spirit that's 
It's leading you to what is true and what is false. It's the Holy Spirit that helps you navigate between true feelings and false feelings. It's the Holy Spirit that enables you to live distinctively Christian. (laughs) That's crazy. How cool is that? It's incredible. So Paul says that there's two kinds of wisdom. There's a human wisdom and there's a godly wisdom. And then he says that the only way that you and I can discern what is of human or what is humanistic versus what is of God is via the spirit. But then also Paul says, there's a third argument, that there are two kinds of people in the world as well. So two kinds of wisdom discerned one way through the spirit. And then there's two different kinds of people. There are those who Paul would call spiritual, those meaning are Christians who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And then Paul says that there are those who are natural, as he calls them, which are unbelievers who do not have the Spirit who lives in them. Those people cannot accept the truths of God. In fact, more often than not, they reject the truth of God. And the, pro- Paul, the problem that Paul sees in the Corinthian church, and we're going to look at this again more next week, is that there are Christians in Corinth who he deems to be Christian, who are spiritual, who have the Spirit, who are not living by the Spirit. To live by the Spirit, Paul would go on in Galatians chapter 5. He would say, if you want to know if you're living by the Spirit, well, all you got to do is look at your life, look at your behavior. Are the things that your life is producing, are those indicative of what's happening on the inside, the Spirit that's dwelling within you? Are you growing in patience, peace, kindness, joy, love? Self-control? Are you, are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? If you want to know, if you have the Spirit within you, then you need to look to the Spirit or the, the fruit that your life is producing. If your life is not producing fruit, then something's wrong. Either you're not a believer and you think you are, or you are a believer and you're just not walking by the Spirit. Both of which Paul would say is a problem. In fact, Paul would say that the division in the church of Corinth leads back to a greater problem that either A, they're not saved and they don't have the spirit and they don't have the ability to discern truth from error. Paul says that they are Christians, so we know it's not that. Then it has to be the fact that they are Christians and they're not living like it. And the problem with Christians who don't live according to the things that they say is that it kills our witness. And if the church has struggled with anything over the years, it's the fact that we've killed our witness. Because we have the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God, yet we don't live according to the Spirit or the wisdom of God. We're living like humans, Paul would say. We're living like natural people, when in reality, we should never look like natural people. We should never act like natural people, but we should act like supernatural people because we have the spirit who's living within us. And so the question that I want to confront this morning and the way I want to close our time together, I want you to think about this, is where do you fall on that continuum? So if there's two people in the world, there's two kinds of people in the world, those who have the spirit of God and those who do not have the spirit of God. And then the subcategory, meaning you have the Spirit of God, but you don't live according to the Spirit of God. Over here, you have the natural person who does not have the Spirit of God, 
and yet oftentimes think that they might have the Spirit of God or they mistake the Spirit of God with knowledge in the world. So, so where do you fall in that continuum? You know, maybe this morning, maybe you walked in here and, and, and you, you are confident that you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, that you recognize that he came to this earth, he gave his life for you, right? He invited you to have a seat at his table. He invited you into his family. You have accepted his forgiveness. You have walked out of an empty tomb. You've experienced the sin and the weight of the world that's lifted off of you. And you were confident that you were walking with him. You have a relationship with him and that you have the spirit of God because you can see it being produced in your life. Maybe that's you. Well, praise God. Continue in your journey. Maybe this morning you walked in here and you know that's you, but, but you're not living like that. If you were to list out the fruit of the Spirit and you were to list out some things in your life, you would go, you know, man, I, I don't see these things growing in my life. And so the invitation I think what Paul would say to you this morning is, man, come to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I agree with you. I don't see these things in my life. I I know that this is true, but Lord, I, I need you to forgive me. I need you to restore me back to a rightful place with you. I'm not challenging your relationship with Jesus. I'm challenging your fellowship with him. I want to be restored back to fellowship with you. I want to experience you in a new way. Maybe you walked in here this morning thinking that you were on the in crowd, and really the spirit right now is saying, that you're on the out crowd, that you thought, man, I, yeah, I'm a Christian because I grew up this way or because my mom and dad are, or because I know all the answers. But the Spirit is telling you right now that you're not. The invitation for you is to say yes, is to say, you know what? My faith has to be my own. And so, yes, I want to admit that I'm a sinner. I want to confess my sin before a holy God. And yes, I want to trust that Jesus is my way back to him, that he came to the earth. He died in my place. He went to the cross for me, walked out of an empty grave so I could leave my shame, sin, and guilt in an empty tomb. Ha, maybe that's you. I would love to talk with you about that. I'll be right here at the end of the service. Our connections team would love to talk with you as well. And we can help you uh, begin a relationship with Jesus today to have the spirit of God, to experience the very wisdom of God. And so where do you fall? Where do you fall this morning? Let the Holy Spirit lead you as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your kindness and your goodness to us, Lord, that you would not leave us where we are, but Father, you would help us to find you and to experience new life in you. God, I pray, Lord, I, I, and I know this to be true. Isaiah 55, 11 promises that as the word is spoken, Father, you do, it does not return void, but rather it accomplishes that which it purposes. Lord, and I know that there's purpose in your word this morning that you're speaking into the hearts of your people right now, and you may be even awakening the faith of someone who does not know you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that. Lord, this is not manipulation. This is true. This is the way that you work. And so, Father, would you just work this morning? Would you lead us in however you want to lead us this morning? Help us to respond in the way that you want us to respond. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray.
Amen.